Hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of, the, of burning sulfur. This is the second death." One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels as the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, ruby, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, turquoise, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. 
Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Sydney. It's pretty cool reading. Next week, we'll have read the entire book of Revelation out loud as an assembly. That's the way it was meant to be. So praise God for his word. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint, and uh, we are in the Advent season. Thank you, Dingledine family. They actually are working back in kids' ministries. Um, and yeah, here's the candles to, to show it. Um, if you're new to Waypoint or have not been part of a church that has highlighted Advent or the Advent season before Christmas, you might be asking, what is Advent? Well, you're in luck, because I'm the teacher preacher, and I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I don't have a handout for Advent, but... Yeah, so if you're playing Waypoint Bingo, this is like a, you can check off, okay, Danny gave us like a history lesson or something. So for most Americans, when they hear the word Advent, they think of Advent calendars. These started in Germany about 170 years ago and have become very popular in parts of Europe uh, and in parts of America where German immigrants settled. They're basically a 24-day countdown to Christmas. I'll show a traditional, this is a traditional wooden advent calendar with a little door. Parents can put little things in there. Kids can get it every day. Uh, then they shifted to these chocolate advent calendars starting, you know, about 60, 70 years ago. We actually did that. You could get them at Trader Joe's when our kids were little. You had to buy it by like November 20th or they were gone. And you open a little door. One time our dog got into it and kind of that wasn't good. He kind of ate the plastic and the paper and the chocolate. Uh, you open a little door. Sometimes our kids would jump the gun and, and you know, go ahead. One of our kids didn't necessarily like chocolate, but he definitely liked, you know, enjoying the little, opening the little door. Uh, many American people um, who are agnostic or non-religious also do this. They're, so it's not necessarily linked to even Christianity anymore. There's a Lego advent calendar that's very popular. Uh, there's even Lego Star Wars Advent Calendar. Uh, it's, it's presently sold out, so don't try to buy it on Amazon or wherever I got that. And, and I, I say this to just say that uh, the tradition is, is great, uh, but as Christians, th- when we think of Advent, it's not just getting to Christmas. It's, it's, it's more than that. Uh, so what is Advent if it's not just the 24 days for Christmas and the calendar. It's a season before Christmas. It actually starts four Sundays before Christmas Eve. So because of Waypoint, we're kind of multi-denominational. You know, we don't necessarily follow some, we're not bound to any particular tradition. We just did two this week, uh, just start, just kicked it off, lining up with our sermon series. So that's why we did two, two candles today. Um, so growing up, I did not celebrate Advent before Christmas. Uh, but in college, I began meeting people from the Methodist tradition, the Anglican tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, and they introduced me to Advent and why it was celebrated for, before Christmas, also to the season of Lent, uh, before Easter, and kind of that these are two things that the church put in the calendar to give us a time to prepare our hearts before a big feast. Um, so, but then I began to ask, you know, me being the history buff, why pink, purple, and white, not red and green because I thought red and green from Luther you know Reformation like Christmas tree you know so why why these weird colors you know and I'll explain that in a couple minutes you'll have to wait um, so 
Bible quiz. What passage in the in the New Testament do we learn how to celebrate Christmas or Advent? Technically, kind of Luke two, but there's no celebration. There's no like do it like this. We as the church through we don't even know when Jesus was born. Actually, there was some disputed dates. We just landed on around this time. Uh, he probably wasn't born on December 25th, but that's okay. But we, as the church was forming, we came up with this with these festivals, and they parallel some of the festivals in the Old Testament. Um, so, what is the Christian year? I'll put this up for history people who want to know. So, the Christmas, Christian year starts with Advent, uh, four weeks before Christmas. Then there's Christmas. There's other days than the ones I put up, but these are the major days that all the different groups agree on. Uh, Christmas Day, Christmas is supposed to start on Christmas Day and be 12 days. You know the 12 days of Christmas on the first day of Christmas? Yeah. Uh, but because of American shopping, we've shifted Christmas season. By like December 26, everybody's exhausted and it's over. Like no one wants to celebrate for 12 more days. So that's okay. You know, again, this isn't in the Bible. This is just the historic uh, tradition that was passed down to us. And that would end on the day called the Day of the Epiphany, which is the day when the wise men came. Places like Mexico, other, other countries, they actually do their gift giving on Epiph- Epiphany is almost as big as Christmas Day. Uh, then the season from Epiphany, it's, it's, it's called the Ordinary Time. And then it goes to Ash Wednesday, which is about 40 days before Easter. And then Ash Wednesday starts off the season of Lent, of preparing your hearts for Easter and a season of just confession and, and remembering that we came from dust and we'll return to dust. Next slide. Uh, then there's Holy Week. Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, the day of, that Jesus gave the Lord's Supper. Good Friday, the day he died, and Easter, the day he rose again. Then 40 days after Easter, we would celebrate the Ascension. That's why when we have the cloth up there of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, after Ascension, on Ascension Sunday, we take it, take it down to show that Jesus... That's how long Jesus was on the earth after he resurrected. Then 10 days after that, it's Pentecost Sunday when we celebrate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church, which we are a part of. The new covenant is fulfilled because the church is the church, and our gathering here this morning is part of that. Uh, and that, that's the church calendar. And then it, you wait and you come back to Advent. So you see how the early Christians created these cycles to give people a chance to remember. Now, this isn't in the Bible, so you don't have to do this. So some church traditions are really into this. Ours, kind of, we kind of do a hybrid here at Waypoint, but we think it's a good thing. And we think it's really good to celebrate Advent during this season, especially in the culture that we live in. Uh, what is Advent? Again, Advent comes from the Latin word meaning the coming. Like Jesus, like the, this arrival, this coming, and it's based on the, the Greek word parousia, which refers to the second coming of Christ. Um, this practice of Advent and the celebrating the church calendar has been practiced in the church throughout the world for over 1,500 years, and it's a season of reflection before Christmas. So basically, it's a time to reflect on the return of Christ, and it's, it's really supposed to be a season of kind of fasting, but because we live in America, it just isn't going to happen. Sorry, guys. That's okay. We're, we're not under the law, you know. This, this isn't in the Bible, but it's okay. But during this time, we have chosen to remember that Jesus promised he'd come and he's coming again. So I sum up the core teaching of Advent. And when I was a children's pastor, I came up with this phrase. Um, Jesus, God promised he would come. At just the right time, he came. 
and he's coming again to make all things right and new. So if you forget everything else I say this morning, remember that. And I won't let you forget it. Um, So why the candles? There's three purple, there's four Sundays in Advent. So the three purple represent love, hope, and peace. The pink candle is a different color to represent that we can have joy even in the waiting. So the whole Advent is just remembering that just like they longed for Jesus to come and he came at Christmas, like Mary and Joseph and John the Baptist and all those Israelites who were just waiting for the Messiah to come, God answered their prayer. We're waiting for him to come again. So the three candles, the hope candle, the love candle, and the peace candle are... And then, the, But we can even have joy in the suffering, even in the waiting. That's why the other candle is a different color. Uh, the purple, probably, there's different reasons why it came. We don't know the exact way. But the purple represents Christ and his royalty. And the white is the Christ candle, which you light on Christmas Eve, kind of starting the Christmas season. So that's called the Christ candle. Uh, so there you go. There's your history, pre- history lesson. But I want you guys to say it again with me. Maybe we can put it up. God promised he would come. All right, let's say it. God promised he would come. At just the right time, he came. And he's coming again to make all things right and new. So where's the... Amen. All right, I'll just sit down. We don't need to preach anymore. All right, where's the love in this? The love is that God came. He promised he would come and he came. He didn't leave us to our sin. That's the incarnation of Jesus. But it's also the exodus. It's also the promise. God's come throughout history. It's also when they were in exile and he brought back the remnant. And where's the hope that he's coming again to make all things right and new? You could also sum up Revelation chapter 21, the passage I'm called to preach on this morning, with the same statement. Um, So let's take a quick dive into what Jesus is showing us through John chapter 21. Oh, there's a handout too, so you don't, you don't have to go to that till later, so don't jump the gun on that. That's, that's for the second half. But um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Hear the word of God from John 21. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This is the final vision that John gets. He sees the future. He sees the new reality. We've heard this before, though. 600 years before Jesus was born, about 700 years before John wrote this, about 680 years or so, the prophet Isaiah ends his prophecy in Isaiah 65 with a message of judgment but salvation. And then he ends chapter, what we call chapter 66 with a message of judgment and hope. Here's what it says in Isaiah 65, 17. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. For the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its its people a joy. Now this is at the time when Jerusalem is getting ransacked by the Babylonians. I want you to remember that. Think about that. So the Babylonian, God is allowing the Babylonians to ransack Jerusalem because of their sin and rebellion and not honoring God and not following what Moses, what God gave them through Moses, the simple way to just follow him, which isn't that simple because they failed over and over again. So, so as Jerusalem's getting ransacked, Isaiah is giving this prophecy, you know, saying that the city will be rebuilt. 
Never again will there be an infant who lives but only a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought of as a mere child. The one who feels, fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. We looked at the wisdom literature earlier in our sermon series. We looked at Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And in those, it's like, how do we balance life? There's this meaninglessness that Ecclesiastes bring up. And Proverbs like, if you just do these things, it'll work out. And, and Job's like, I did the right things and it didn't work out. And there's almost this triangle of, of just trying to figure out how to make sense of the meaninglessness. And Song of Songs is like, how do we bring sex and marriage and, and procreation and, and God's gift of love and romance into this? And I feel like at the end of this passage that we read at the end of Isaiah, nothing's meaningless in the new heaven and the new earth. And there's no tension. There's, no, there's none of this. Um, and nothing's meaningless, but also there's no longer any sea. And sea meant chaos and brokenness and things you couldn't figure out. Ecclesiastes and Job are trying to deal with the, the sea, the chaos, the things that, for them, the sea was this mystery. You know, it's vast and it's dangerous. And once you, if you get stuck out at sea, it's pretty much over for you. And there's no, no longer any of this meaninglessness, this brokenness, this pain. And Isaiah's already promised this. All John is doing is showing the revelation. He's getting the final picture that they already had gotten in Isaiah. Our hope and confidence is today is, is that today, our hope and confidence is that today we can have meaning and purpose because we are building a kingdom, a city, a new humanity that's not meaningless. But like Ecclesiastes and Job, sometimes does it feel meaningless? Is it hard? Do you feel tension? John goes on in his vision of the future. Let's, let's jump to, to verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Coming down from heaven, uh, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautifully dressed, uh, as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So imagine this giant cube. In the measurements of the cube, it's about the size of the Mediterranean. It's probably the size of the Roman Empire. Like, so in Babel, they tried to build up, and in the end, it didn't work. They wanted to be like God, and God's just like, I'm just going to come down to you. And, he, and the measurements literally are this cube that's probably the size of the Roman Empire. Like, that's how big this, it is, the 1200 stadia. And he says, and look, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. What did John say when Jesus came? Jesus, God is dwelling with us, you know. He, Jesus came and dwelled with us, but finally, God's dwelling place will be with us fully. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. This is our hope. Now, I'm probably going to cry during this section, but bear with me. My dad passed away two months ago. He only had one request in his will, basically one request, that I would officiate at his funeral. I didn't know this. I'd never seen this well. Uh, it wasn't easy, but God sustained me. Two days before he died was the last time I preached here at Waypoint. And I preached on Revelation 4 and 5, how Jesus is seated on the throne, and that's our reality. 
I actually was not supposed to preach on that passage. I was supposed to preach on the plagues and stuff, the more complicated, you know, passage. But because of some last minute changes and things, I ended up preaching on that. And I believe it was God's providence and a gift to me. Because without that sermon and the joy and hope and love of God and the peace of God that allowed me, that I got to experience as I was preparing that sermon, that was probably my favorite sermon to ever prepare. Because it made me see Jesus on the throne. Without that, I don't know how I would have made it through the difficult weeks that were to follow. My dad would always listen to the sermons, but, you know, after I preached, and I guess he, he didn't listen to that one, but he didn't need to. Because he's in the throne room with Christ. I had Erica read parts of Revelation 4 and 5, and this section that we just read of Revelation 21 at the funeral. It says, look, God's dwelling places with his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I don't know why my dad suffered with mental illness and severe headaches and seizures and physical pain for so many years. I don't know why God didn't heal heal him. But I do know that God has promised he'll be with us in the brokenness of this world and that our hope is in his promise that the old order of things All this brokenness and pain and death and hurt will pass away. That's my hope, and now that's my dad's reality. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying and pain. The old order of things has passed away. John could write that in the present tense because he's seeing it in the present tense when God gives him that vision, when Jesus reveals it to him. The old Meaningless, hopeless, broken order of sin and death will pass away. But we will live as new creations in Jesus. That's our hope. Verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Amen. Because there's a lot of stuff that needs to be made new in this broken world. He said, write this down. For these are trustworthy and true. He said to me, I am, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit this, all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. And actually in the original Greek it says they will be my son. And this is probably a reference to Psalm 2 declares, you know, God, Jesus is God's son. He says, today you have become my son. I've become your father. And we, with Jesus, become sons. The NIV uses children here because it includes men and women. But we inherit what Jesus inherited. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts and idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I'm actually going to share a little bit on this this part of the text later in the sermon. But I want to think about this. The struggle you feel when you wake up each day 
of should you enjoy the world, try to fix the world, or reject the world is not in vain. Because there's something going on here. This is our future reality, but this is, and it's part of our present reality, but it's not our full present reality. And one day this struggle to say, what should I do, will no longer exist. But for now, how do we live this out? And I believe Revelation and the, the, the whole Bible gives us this, and God gives us his word, his spirit, and his church. Um, but how do, how do we live this out? Because one day this won't be our reality. We won't have the tension of, do I enjoy it? Do I fix it? Or do I reject it? Because we can just enjoy it all. We won't have to worry about it. And when we fix stuff, we're doing things perfectly. I won't be fixing something at the expense of something else. Right now in the world, for me to enjoy my iPhone, probably some people were exploited somewhere in the world, unfortunately, in the process of all the metals and materials. And that's the brokenness of the world. So we just wake up every day asking God, how do, how do we live in this tension? How do we live in this balance? But he's showing us that one day that won't be our reality. But we are called right now to live in all three, to enjoy the world, to try to fix it, and sometimes to re- flat out reject it. And this passage kind of shows us how do, how do we balance this, living in the, the worldly city, but also that we're part of the heavenly city. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, Paul tells us, Paul exhorts us, he says, In him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And I, I put this in bold, with all wisdom and understanding. God will give us the wisdom and understanding to understand this mystery, to know how to live it out, how to take the grace and the forgiveness that we're given in Christ. And then it says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. How do we live out his will? How do, he'll give us what we need, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfill, fulfillment. So Paul's acknowledging what's, what's in Revelation here, that we, we can live in this mystery. We can have the wisdom to do it, but we're also waiting for the fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. So we're part of that, but it's not fully there realized yet. It's not fully realized yet. So let's move on. The next section of Revelation 21 is often titled, if your Bible has titles, the New Jerusalem and the Bride of the Lamb. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it talks about, it says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came to me and said, and this is from the previous chapters, really, what, chapter 6 through 20 are talking about these plagues and the, and the wrath of God being poured out. Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God will be poured out at the final judgment, but the wrath of God has also been poured out throughout human history as people have continually disobeyed God. But God is gracious and he's given us grace. And even in the midst of this, he's always giving people a chance to turn back to him. And the wrath of God being poured out is God just pulling his favor from his people like it was at the time of Isaiah when he allowed the other, the Babylonian armies to conquer. The passage goes on and it, it talks about the, the, uh, the measurements of the city and the holy city coming down out of heaven. Um, and it talks about the gates and there's a lot of 
Uh, there's measuring rod of gold. It talks about how big it is. It's a big cube. Uh, notice that the measurements are all uh, multiples of 12, which is significant. Um, it's as wide as it is long. The foundations of the city, this, I'm jumping to verse 19, were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, second sapphire, the third a gate, fourth emerald, agate, I guess agate. Uh, the 12 gates, I'm not a geologist. My daughter is actually taking, what, geology or something right now. And she, she had to take her one science class. She's probably going to kill me for saying this, but maybe she'll teach me how to pronounce these, these cool stones. But uh, I don't even know my birthstone. May? Somebody help me? Emerald. Emerald, see? All right. There you go. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each gate was made of a single pearl. The great street of the city of gold was as pure as transparent glass. So notice that he's just giving this how beautiful it is. These are the most beautiful things that these John's readers could imagine. So what's going on here? This section is basically linking the final judgment and salvation in the, in the city to Exodus, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. God did it once, he'll do it again. Think about it. Exodus, there's plagues. They come out. Then uh, there's these long instructions on how to build the temple, measurements. Then there's like the breastplate. We'll talk about that. All right. So think about this. Let's go on this journey. Genesis 1 through 11. God shows the good creation and the rebellious humanity. And God's means of judgment and salvation, the garden, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, Babel again, linked to Babylon. Then Genesis 12 through Exodus 23, God is establishing a covenant people and showing that he will bring judgment against the rebellious creation, but also hope and salvation. And then in Exodus 24, he shows us how we will dwell with his people and provides a way for them to have salvation. And he began this process with the Passover and the Exodus. Uh, and this leads to true life and hope. And the, the rest of the Bible is basically how to live in the presence of God. Because he teaches them how to build this tabernacle, which will then build a temple, which is a recreation of Eden when we had God. Do you follow in what, what... So Revelation 21 is following the pattern of Exodus, the book of Exodus. Uh, and 24 is when God tells us how we should live with him and dwell with him. And there's a bunch of measurements. Um, and the rest of the Bible is just showing us this reality, and, and Revelation is the final culmination. But Isaiah and Ezekiel are also showing us what John shows us in Revelation. In Exodus 27, God tells Moses, build an altar of Achaia wood, three cubits high to be square, five cubits long, five cubits wide. See the measurements? See what John is doing in Revelation? In Exodus 28, it talks about the breast piece on the, the priest. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions. The work of a skilled hands. May it be like in the effort of gold, of blue, purple, scarlet yarn. Uh, 16 is to be square. Then he goes on 17. Then mount four rows of precious stones. And he lists all these stones. They're not the same stones as in Revelation, but it's the same idea. That, and then if you read Exodus, there's always these flashing lightning and the covenant, the, and the Ark of the Covenant, in the same scenes show up in Revelation. There's even a time in Exodus 24 when the elders are assembled with Moses, similar to the elders that are assembled in the final throne room in heaven, and they're having a meal before God, and the ground turns into precious stone. The same stone that's mentioned in the throne room in Ezekiel 
like the vision of God's throne room. Like literally it says, the ground turns to this precious stone. Pretty cool, huh? The Bible's awesome. The Bible is God's word through and through, pr- tested over and over again that God promised he'd come. He came. He came. At, he was there at the Passover. He was there at the Exodus. He was there when they were rebelling against him. He was there with David. He was there when they got exiled. He was there when he brought him back. And he was there when Jesus came. And he's there with us now. The final section of chapter 21. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We read it earlier, but they don't, we don't need a temple anymore. We don't need to go somewhere to worship God because we're the bride of Christ and we're with him forever. We don't need light. Genesis, God had to create all the stuff for us. This is saying we don't need even the stuff that God creates in Genesis 1. We get God's presence. We get a place, a family. We get perfection. We get paradise. Most Americans, I mean, probably everybody, you kind of work so you could, you work hard, you put money away, you know, watch these commercials, Fidelity, all these, you know, investment things, these happy old people loving, loving their lives on islands, you know, this 65-year-old guy surfing with his beautiful wife and plastic surgery wife, you know, and, and their beautiful grandkids. They, they do all this to get paradise. But guess what, guys? We have paradise. We don't need a mutual fund. You know, most of our brothers and sisters in the world don't have a penny saved for retirement. Their mutual fund, their insurance is Jesus Christ and the Spirit guiding them every day so they'll have enough food for tomorrow. Our real inheritance is this. This is the real paradise. This is the real place. This is perfection. We... We will be perfected. Most people are like, I want to like live as long and stay healthy. And there, there's nothing wrong with those things. But you could be Tom Brady. Eventually, Tom Brady's going to fail. Like, he hasn't yet. Eventually, Le- LeBron James's body's going to collapse. And he can't do it. He can't be the best. But in Christ, we, we can have it. We have an inheritance. This is our hope and our future. Um... All right, three things, real fast. What do we do now? What would John want his hearers and us to do as we see this vision of the future revealed? One, I think he'd want us to take God's judgments seriously. This passage, uh, verse 5, or really verse 8, but it starts in verse 5, you know, write this down. These words are true and trustworthy. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. To the thirsty, he talks about, to the thirsty I'll give water, the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, it says these, the liars, the adulterers, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is serious stuff, guys. Jesus came to warn us from this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus' main mission was to say, accept my salvation because the wrath of God is coming because I have to do this. The world is broken. When left to our own devices, we just turn on each other and kill each other and exploit each other. The very people who were exploited come into power and then exploit. Look at human history. 
There's never been a fully benevolent king who has any kind of power for any period of time. But Jesus is a benevolent king and his kingdom is forever. There's, there's, there will be people who will face this judgment, be cast out of God's per- presence and perish. But like John 3.16 says, we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. In Revelation 21.27, Jesus says, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are in the book of life. Let's get our names in the book of life. Are you right with Jesus? God came to save us. If you don't know what this means, at the end of our service, there'll be some prayer people around with yellow lanterns. Go talk to one of them. Come talk to me. We want to talk to the person who brought you here. We want you to make sure that you understand that there is a judgment coming, but there's salvation in Jesus. Um... Let's look at our handout. So, this is the contrast of the visions of the New Jerusalem with the worldly city of Babylon in Revelation. Uh, Eric was here, I don't know. Can you, if you didn't get a handout, can, can you pass those out? Thanks. Just raise your hand if you didn't get one. Um, I'll read it while they're passing them out. All right, the chaste bride, the, the wife of the lamb... That's the reality for the new Jerusalem. Versus the harlot with whom the kings of the earth fornicate. That's the reality for Babylon. Her splendor is the glory of God. That's the new Jerusalem. Babylon's splendor is from exploiting her empire. Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem's splendor is the nations walk by her light, which is the glory of God. Babylon's corruption and deception deceives the nations. New Jerusalem, the kings of the earth bring their glory to her, their worship and their submission to God. Babylon rules over the kingdoms of the earth. The new Jerusalem, the new city, they bring the glory and honor of the nations to her. The glory of God comes to her. Babylon's luxurious wealth is extorted from all the world. In the new Jerusalem, uncleanness, abomination, falsehood, all the brokenness are excluded. But in Babylon, the abominations, impurities, and deceptions are part of the culture. In the new city, the water of life and the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. But in this worldly city, the worldly Babylon, the wine, which is the wine that makes the nations drunk. In the new city, there's life and healing. In the worldly Babylon city, there's the blood of slaughter. And why is there life and healing in the new city? Because of the blood of the Lamb. Not the blood of the innocent. And finally, God's people are called to enter the new Jerusalem. And God's people are called to come out of Babylon. Let's come out of the worldly city, guys. This is for me, too. We have a choice every day. Let's be brothers and sisters who help each other, not look to the appeal of the worldly city. Again, like I mentioned earlier, there are things in this world that we can enjoy now. There are things in this world we're called to fix now, and there are things that we need to reject. And the Word of God and His Spirit and His church are how we're going to do that. So let's do that together, okay? The second thing, take God's salvation seriously. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think what he means is accept the free gift of salvation, live in God's love, grace, and peace, but don't take advantage of it. 
This plays out how we live in the tension. Let's be people who are so grateful for the salvation we've been given. And because we're saved, we love others. Because we're saved, we serve others. And let's be the body together. And when we take communion, we're going to take communion in a minute. This will be part of that. It's us remembering how to do that. And finally, let's live in a past, present, future hope. Our hope is a present living hope that God will honor his covenant with his people in the future based on God's fulfilled promise of the past, the garden, the covenants, the exodus, the incarnation. We look to Jesus' past coming to know he's coming again. But even the, the, the way we can look at our own lives and see where God was faithful in our own lives. The present reality is that Jesus is on the throne and his kingdom is here and we are part of it through faith in him and that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Right now, stop and think about that. Like when Paul says that, we just take it lightly because we've heard it a million times. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there's one room, one box where that could be. Now we all get that title. And the promised future that God revealed through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is ours. Revelation 21 and 22 is our future. Let's pray. God, we're about to take the cup and the bread and remember the sacrifice you gave us and you made for us. God, may we also remember that you came, you're with us now, and you're coming again. May we live in that hope, in that living hope like Eric read earlier from 1 Peter. May that be our reality. Help us to be your church in every way. And for anyone here who does not know you, God, may they come to you today. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Waypoint Church, we're going to come and have communion together, this beautiful family meal together as a family. But before we do so, I just want to just think about and meditate on this beautiful reality that we get to live in. See, guys, we're in the middle of celebrating Advent. In this middle of this beautiful season of Advent, we celebrate, we remember the arrival, the coming of Jesus. Remember what Pastor Danny said, God promised he would come, and the fullness of time he came, and he's coming again to make all things new. Well, in this season of Advent, here, here we are, and we're waiting for Jesus to come again. This beautiful time of eager anticipation, Jesus, come, make all things new. And for me, I often feel the sentiment most kind of ringing most powerfully in my heart when times are hard, when I get hard news, when I read something about a mass tragedy that occurred in this world, I, first thing that th- I think of is, come Lord Jesus, make all things new. And so here's this odd time, this odd tension point that we're living in, because we're living in this point of, yes, Jesus, we need you to come and make all things new. At the same time, here's what we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate that right here, right now, because he did come in the fullness of time, that we have all that we need in him to be known and to be loved, to have purpose. And because he did come already in the fullness of time with all that we need for salvation and for relationship, all that we need in this life to live it to the full because we're empowered by his spirit and he dwells with us. See, I love the idea of communion in the season of Advent 
Because in the season of Advent, as we're eagerly anticipating, longing for the arrival, the, the coming of Jesus, we also can live in the reality that, yes, we're reminded he already came. He already came because he loves, because he knows, because he is passionate, he is right, and he's called us to a relationship with him. He has already come. And so we live in this incredible, beautiful tension point in our lives in this time of the history of the world where we eagerly anticipate his coming, but until that day comes, we have all that we need right now. We have all that we need in him to experience his goodness in the land of the living now. To celebrate with joy. Even in the midst of looking at the hardest situations this world has to offer, we have a living hope. Because when he said that he would come and he came. So that we can look at death and say he's conquered you. We can look at disease, we can look at cancer, we can look at sorrow, we can look at tragedies in this world and say yes, he's coming to make all things new because he promised he would come and he came. So when he promises he'd come again, he will come again. So as we partake in communion as a family meal together, can we live in that reality? May that be our truth for us. We live in this beautiful tension point of living in the future hope of his coming and the confidence that he already came. Amen? Amen. So I invite you Waypoint Church, as you partake, as you take the body, as you take the bread, remember the words that Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, and remembrance of me. So as you take this, his body, we remember that he came in the fullness of time and his body was broken for you. And as he poured the wine out for his disciples, he said, this is the blood of the covenant. My blood shed for you. Take and drink. Remember the blood that was shed for you, the blood that purchased your righteousness and was ransomed you. Drink and remember him. Drink and live in the reality that you are a new creation in him. My people, may we feast in this family meal. This is a celebration. This is a feast. God, God throughout the course of history with his people has invited them to feast as a family together. May you be nourished by this feast. May this feast remind you of who you are, how radically loved you are, how known you are, what purpose you have. May this feast remind you of the point you live in in history, that Jesus promised he would come. He came and he did all that you need to live a full life with purpose now. And he's coming again. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for your love that is so radical. God, we thank you for your love that is so passionate. We thank you for the love that expressed itself so fully on the cross. God, we'll ask that as we 
as partaking of this meal as a family together, as we worship as a family together in this place, in this moment, now when we live in the reality of this beautiful time, this beautiful situation where we have the fullness of you, the fullness of your spirit inside of us, as we eagerly wait your kingdom consummation, as we eagerly wait your kingdom finished, when you make all things new. Thank you in the meantime that you've given us the power and the calling to right now in this place to see your kingdom advance. That you get to use us as instruments of recreation. They get to use us as instruments of paradise redemption. God, thank you for calling us to such incredible works. And God, our prayer is this, in this moment, if there's anybody in here, God, who doesn't know you, who doesn't trust in you, doesn't have faith in you, that may you reveal yourself to those, such a person in such a mighty way. God, so that they can have this living hope that we have. God, we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.